0: My name is Brandon, I'm one of the pastors here, and I'm glad to be able to open God's Word again this morning as we continue our series in the book of Judges. One of the greatest tragedies, really, as I think about recent decades in the church, one of the greatest tragedies is how many Christian leaders don't finish well. Uh, It's honestly terrifying to me, uh, because I preach the same gospel, I read the same Bible, I've read a lot of the same books. I've walked in some of the same circles as people through whom God has accomplished great things and and genuinely ministered to people yet whose lives and ministries go off the rails before they make it to the station. And, And I'm not just thinking about the celebrity pastors that you read about in the newspaper when they fall, but some of my own mentors, people who taught me how to preach the gospel, and apply the gospel to life who no longer affirm that gospel. And I'm not even just thinking about the obvious scandals, sex, money, and so on. In recent decades, there's a much more insidious vice, one that has taken down pastors with otherwise sound doctrine and sanctified marriages, the same vice that takes down Gideon in our passage today. Success. Success can be a dangerous drug. It feels really good. It feels great to be on top, to accomplish things, to have your contribution recognized, your worth validated. Uh, When you taste success, it's easy to want more. And even for those who don't taste it, to long for it and crave it or even resent those who have it. And of course, success itself um, is not intrinsically wrong, right? It's, the problem is when we let that success go to our head, when we forget the author of our success and begin to think that there must be something special about us, And that can happen in any context, in any industry. But it's all the more tragic when it happens in service to God. In service to God. When someone starts well as a willing servant, eager to be used by God for his purposes, who after a while begins to think that because God is using them, there must be something special about them. Something that other people should recognize and honor some unique contribution that they alone can make to the kingdom. And so after a while, it becomes almost impossible to tell the difference from where God's kingdom ends and their own kingdom begins. In short, we confuse or replace God's power and purposes with our own. And that's something that can go both Ways. Sometimes we can look at, at uh, what God is doing through others and, and assume that that is merely the ambition of man. Like that can't be God's work. That's just them having a big head. That's the mistake that many of the Israelites make in our story this morning is they look at what God accomplished through Gideon in delivering Israel from the hand of the Midianites. The story that we looked at last week. But just as dangerous, if not more dangerous, is when a leader looks at God's work and then replaces it with their own ambition. And that's the mistake that Gideon sadly and and quite ironically makes in our passage uh, today, with the result that eventually he leads Israel back into the very idolatry he delivered them from at the end of chapter six. Both Are tragedies and neither of them end well. So there's a cautionary tale in our our text this morning, and we'll start by looking at the response of the people what happens when we confuse God's work in others for merely the ambitions of man. And so chapter 8 picks up right where chapter 7 left off. Uh, again in chapter 7 we saw God deliver his people Israel in, in a miraculous way in this victory over the Midianites and the Amalekites and the people of the east who had been oppressing Israel for seven years. How God raised up Gideon who led Israel uh, in an in a incredibly miraculous victory, one that was designed to... Uh, be so remarkable that only God could possibly get the credit for it. Uh, With just 300 men uh, routing an army of 135,000, it was truly remarkable. And so at the end of the chapter, Gideon and his men do take up the sword. In that initial victory, they didn't even have swords in their hands. They had a trumpet and, and a clay pot with a lamp in it. At the end of the chapter, as, as the armies of, of the Amalekites and Midianites are scattering, they do take up the sword and they do rally more Israelites to kind of help win the cleanup operation, tracking down the soldiers and kings who have escaped the previous evening's defeat. And one of the tribes that they call into action who wasn't actually summoned uh, back in chapter six when Gideon had initially mustered the troops uh, is the tribe of Ephraim. Uh, But as the enemies are now escaping through Ephraim's land, they're called to action and they respond with force. They, They show up and they capture the two princes of Midian, Oreb and Zeb, and they execute them. But rather than celebrating the victory together at the beginning of chapter 8, chapter 8 starts with a dispute. How dare Gideon go to war against Midian and not invite their star players to the game and not invite Ephraim? I mean, that's like, again, leaving your, your star players sitting on the bench to the last seconds of the game or not even telling them there is a game until well into the fourth quarter. Ephraim is offended that Gideon would dare go to war and not invite them. Gideon has failed to recognize their importance and their power. And so from their perspective, Gideon's victory here was not God's work. This was Gideon's own ego and pride. Because if God was at work, he clearly would have called Ephraim to help out. They look at God's work and they confuse it with the ambition of man. Which, ironically, or not ironically, only proves what God warned Gideon at the very beginning of chapter seven, that given the opportunity, Israel would try to take credit for the victory themselves. Here you see that happening. But whether through cunning or humility, it will become clear later, Gideon de-escalates the situation. He compares their military victories Uh, between what he's accomplished and what Ephraim accomplished in capturing Oreb and Zeb, he uses the imagery of a a grape harvest and, and points out that Ephraim's harvest was a lot more prestigious than Gideon's. They got to claim the two Midianite princes. And so with their ego properly stroked, Ephraim backs down. But their pride is evident they assume that if God is doing something, they would be involved. They confuse God's work for man's ambition, and as a result, they criticize the work of God. And as the story moves on, the inhabitants of the towns of Sukkot and Penuel make a similar mistake, but in a different direction. So rather than being upset that Gideon didn't invite them to the party, they're annoyed that Gideon would even ask their help at all. So Gideon and his men are are tracking down uh, some of the the kings and soldiers who've escaped, about 15,000 troops and two Midianite kings, and they come to these towns looking for food to refresh them in the midst of their chase. But once again, the Israelites of these towns, they look at God's work and all they can see is Gideon's vain effort. This is his battle, not ours. And and he obviously hasn't finished the job. So so if we help him and he doesn't finish the job, we put our own towns at risk. So rather than help Gideon and his soldiers, their, their answer is, you know, when you complete your job, then you can talk to us. Otherwise, be moving on. They look at God's work and they confuse it for the ambition of man. They should be grateful for Gideon, uh, to be honest. They should be thankful for how the Lord has worked through him, both Ephraim and Sukkot and Penuel. One author notes that with a remarkable victory needing to be clenched, The pride of Ephraim and the fear of Sukkot and Penuel are both stupid and wrong. A passion for recognition or for safety destroys the cohesion that Israel needs at this point in the battle. But what's interesting, as again the story continues, that those later in the story who look on Gideon and his work with favor they actually make the same mistake that Ephraim and Penuel and Sukkot made. In verses 22 to 27, some of the Israelites want to set up Gideon as a king because they look at God's victory and give Gideon the credit for it. So verse 22, then the men of Israel said to Gideon, rule over us, you and your son and your grandson also, for you have saved us. From the hand of Midian. So they too confuse God's work with man's ambition, man's accomplishment. But in this case, they want to honor it, they want on board. How easy it is to look at the work that God accomplishes through his people and either write it off or celebrate it as merely the work of man. That's what's happening here. And of course, you know, it happens today too. The world does it all the time, looks at uh, the supernatural and, and tries to come up with some naturalistic explanation. But even God's people can slip into this trap, sometimes out of jealousy, like Ephraim. Uh, if, if God was really at work here, he would have called on us. He'd be using us. Or think of the Pharisees in the Gospels when Jesus is driving out demons. They accuse him of serving Beelzebul, the prince of demons. Because clearly this Jewish peasant from the north couldn't be doing God's work. That's our job. And so out of jealousy we can downplay the work God is doing simply because he's doing it through somebody other than me. Or sometimes we we can make that confusion because of fear like Sukkot and Penuel, if God's really at work here, that's going to mess up our world. That's going to be risky for us to get involved. God might actually ask us to do something hard or to endure suffering or to change our lifestyle or to acknowledge that we're not actually in control. And so, so this can't be God's work because that's too costly. And then sometimes it comes from infatuation we see God's work, but instead of focusing on the God who's doing it, we put all of our attention and all of our affection on the servant through whom he's working. We idolize them or look to them as the solution. And after a while, we can barely distinguish between God's voice and their voice. This is the very mindset that feeds a lot of the celebrity culture that has become so Uh, dominant in American evangelicalism today and and that has sadly created a lot of damage. Because not only is it easy for people to look at God's servant and and instead of seeing God's work put all of the effort and attention on, on the person, it's equally tempting for those servants to replace God's work with their own ambition. And again, sadly and ironically, that's what Gideon does in this story in increasing measure as the chapter unfolds. What starts as a genuine work of God slowly becomes overshadowed by Gideon's own personal agenda. And again, God used Gideon in miraculous ways. There is no debating that. But as Gideon grew in his faith in God, there is this subtle indication that he was maybe beginning to put his faith in himself as well. So if you think again back to last week, to the battle cry that Gideon chose for their their battle, for their war. uh, For a battle that was designed to highlight one unambiguous conqueror, the Lord it was strange to see a battle cry that gives credit to two people, for the Lord and for Gideon. Now, maybe he's just trying to rally the troops, right? But, but that was kind of strange. And sadly, that suspicion that, that pride is beginning to seep into Gideon is confirmed as we uh, follow the story in chapter 8. We see it first in Gideon's interaction with the leaders at Sukkot and Penuel. When they refused to offer aid... Rather than de-escalating the situation like he did with Ephraim, Gideon decides to pour gasoline onto it. He starts breathing threats and violence to them. He, he says to Sukkot in verse 7, Well then, when the Lord has given Ziba and Zalmunna into my hand, I will flail your flesh with the thorns of the wilderness and with briars. I mean, that escalated quickly. And to Penuel, he says in verse 9, When I come again in peace, I will break down this tower. Now, I have no clue what Gideon thinks the word peace means, but I'm pretty sure this was not the work God called him to. And and later on, when he captures those two kings and comes back, he makes good on his promises and his threats in verses 13 to 16. He teaches the men of Sukkot a lesson with thorns and briars. Not the lesson God intended in chapter 7, mind you. The lesson that salvation belongs to God. Rather, the lesson that no one snubs Gideon and gets away with it. That's his new lesson. And, And similarly, in verse 17, he pulls down the tower of Penuel and kills the men of the city. This was not the work God gave him to do. Basically, Gideon has come to believe that because God used him to do something special, there must be something special about him. Something that everybody else should recognize or else. Which shows you, as Tim Keller points out, that the reason for his diplomacy uh, with Ephraim was not because he did not want to strike them, but because he could not. Ephraim was bigger than him, and it reveals that despite God making sure that the victory was so miraculous that everyone should have seen that it was given by God, not earned by Gideon, that Gideon himself has forgotten the lesson of the 300. He feels that he ought to receive admiration and honor for what he has done. As Dan Block summarizes, Dan Block in his uh, commentary on Judges, which is really one of the best commentaries on this book, he summarizes it so well. He says, Those who are called to leadership in the kingdom of God face a constant temptation to exchange the divine agenda for personal ambition. And ironically, the more impressive one's achievements for God The greater the temptation. Success is a drug. And so Gideon himself, he has confused God's work with his own, with his own work, and and therefore he has now begun to replace God's agenda with his own ambition. And this becomes even clearer uh, when he finally deals with the kings of Midian that he's captured. What started as A national deliverance has now been replaced by a personal vendetta. So if you look at verses 18 to 19 again, then he said to Zeba and Zalmunna, Where are the men that you killed at Tabor? And they answered, As you are, so were they. Every one of them resembled the son of a king. And Gideon said, They were my brothers the sons of my mother, as the Lord lives, if you had saved them alive, I would not kill, them, kill you. And so all of a sudden, it becomes clear that the cleanup operation wasn't really about finishing the work God had given Gideon to do, but rather it was about tacking on his own personal agenda, family retribution. And, and there's this heartbreaking scene where Gideon, in his desire to humiliate these two kings, asks his son, a boy, to rise up and kill them. But Jether, his oldest son, hesitates because he is afraid. He hesitates because he is afraid. And in that moment, you're reminded of the man that Gideon had been, right? Grasping for faith to trust God, hesitant and afraid, and the contrast that paints with the tyrant he has now become. And the whole tragedy is clenched when when Gideon returns from his victory and the people of Israel say to him again, rule over us, you and your sons and your grandson also, for you have saved us from the hand of Midian. Now notice what happens here. Gideon's doctrine is rock solid. Verse 23, Gideon said to them, I will not rule over you and my son will not rule over you, but the Lord will rule over you. Right answer. But his actions betray his intentions. He refuses the title of king, but he requests to be treated like a king. He claims the royal symbols of the Midianite kings, the crescent ornaments. He, he requests a contribution uh, from the spoils of war in v- verse 24. Every one of you, uh, give me the earrings from his spoil. So he gets 1,700 shekels of gold from this request, which is the modern day equivalent of about $1.1 million. He gathers a harem and has a dynastic sized family. He has 70 sons. It's the kind of stuff kings did. And the best part, he names one of his kids, one of his sons, Abimelech, which means my father is king, right? If you're trying to refuse the crown, you usually don't name your son daddy is king, right? So his doctrine is right, but his behavior is corrupt. And what he does with his new wealth only amplifies that as he seeks to kind of secure his role as God's go-to man. He makes an ephod out of the gold that he received. An ephod was uh, part of the priestly garments. It was this tunic that the priest would wear over the rest of his clothes uh, to which the breastplate was attached and which also held the urim and the thummim, which were two stones that were used by the priest to discern God's will. And so, as one author explains, the ephod, kind of like the tabernacle or the ark, it was designated, uh, the ephod designated the true place of God's dwelling and was a way to discern God's will in times of crisis. So in making his own copy Gideon essentially sets up his hometown as a rival place of worship. The tabernacles over in Shiloh, Gideon wants everybody to come here to look for God. He wants to encourage people to come to him for guidance, to see his hometown as the place where God can be found. So Gideon has used God to consolidate his own position rather than using his position to serve and be used by God. And again, that is so common today. The idea that that because a leader has been used by God, therefore it must be something special about that leader, some special connection they have with God, and so they seek to consolidate their power and their voice. The leader's vision is God's vision, and so therefore you cannot question it. Uh, this is what happens when a pastor or, or a leader or even a church can no longer tell the difference between their brand and the gospel, where, where God's kingdom ends and their own kingdom begins. And understand that this can happen even among leaders with otherwise solid doctrine. Like Gideon's doctrine was correct. Just because someone's doctrine is solid doesn't mean that their ambitions aren't ungodly or self-centered. And you can see that often today too among celebrated teachers who are simply jerks. Like, they bully those who disagree with them. They build their ministries based on everyone that they're against rather than the God that they are for. And as a result, they become the the de facto standard for their followers. And so it's no longer what does the Bible say, it's what does this guy say the Bible says. It is ugly and ungodly. And the church would be better served to give those bullies less and less of a hearing, which is tragic. It's tragic to watch servants of God start well and finish poorly, to be successful in ministry, but then to let it go to your head. So where does that come from? Where does that come from? How did Gideon get there? How do so many leaders and, and pastors and servants today wind up in the same place? And no doubt, like anything, there's all sorts of, of factors, right? Um, multiple factors, but the heart of it all seems to be the same reason that everything goes off the rails in the book of Judges. All the way back to chapter two, verse 10. They forgot the Lord and the work he had done for them. They took their eyes off of God and his saving work and put them on themselves. And the result was devastating, not just for Gideon, but for all of Israel. I mean, the very man who led his family out of idolatry to Baal back in chapter 6, by the end of his life, has led all Israel back into idolatry to that same God. Um, That's his legacy. The Israelites whored after the ephod that he made. That is, they committed spiritual adultery by giving their affection and loyalty to a God other than the Lord. And after Gideon's death, it just got worse. In fact, this is the last time in the book of Judges where the land has any rest as a result of one of the judges' service. It's all downhill from here. So what then is the solution? What's the solution? How do we avoid going off the rails in the same way, whether as leaders or or in our action with other leaders and servants of God? Well, as cliche as it may sound, there is only one solution sure solution. And that is to keep your eyes on the cross. Keep your eyes on the cross. The cross of Jesus both humbles us and strengthens us at the same time. It humbles us and strengthens us at the same time. It's at the cross of Christ where we see our sin for what it really is. Ugly self-serving, a a betrayal against God and neighbor, treasonous and deserving of God's judgment. The cross is what it costs God to redeem his people, the willing crucifixion of his eternal son. And, And so if you can look at the cross and not feel the weight of your sin in some way, you're not looking closely enough. And that feeling of that weight, that is what humbles us. It reminds us that we could never be our own savior. It reminds us that that all that we have is a gift of God's grace, that all that God accomplishes through us is a work of his grace. The cross of Jesus humbles us. And yet at the very same moment, it also strengthens us. It reminds us of the unquenchable love of God, that no sin will stand in his way. It affirms God's affection and value for us, that that he would go to such lengths to redeem a people for himself. It reminds us That our sin, that sin that we feel the weight of, that that sin has been decisively dealt with. That God in Christ has done everything necessary to deal with our sin and to bring us to God that the cross is enough. And so as we bow our eyes in in sorrow over our sin, the cross at the same time lifts our chin to enjoy the warmth of God's smile. It strengthens us. It it strengthens us to serve God and to be used by God, not because there's something so special about us, but because His grace is sufficient even for someone like me. And so we look to the cross. We look to the cross. The cross is what helps us navigate our interaction with other servants of God, with other leaders and ministries and so on. It's our point of reference. So is what they're doing, what they're teaching and how they're living, is that anchored in the message and power and pattern of the cross? Is Jesus the heart of their message or is he the means to some other end? When you walk away, is your dominant impression, wow, they're such great teachers or they're such a great servant? Or is your dominant impression, wow, Jesus is such a great savior? That's that's the lens. The cross gives us a lens through which to gauge our interaction with other servants of God, other leaders, other ministries, uh, our own ministries within our church. So the cross helps us navigate those interactions, but as leaders, we must also keep our eyes fixed on the cross. The cross is what qualifies us for ministry and it's what strengthens us for ministry. The cross is what lifts our head when we fail and keeps us humble when we succeed. It's what keeps us fixed on God's power and and purposes, and guards us from replacing those with our own. It's what keeps us from crossing boundaries in leadership that should never be crossed. And and I'm not talking just about moral boundaries, but the boundary between advancing God's kingdom and building your own. Boundaries that, that Gideon just blew right through. So as Barry Webb illustrates, the boundary between exhorting people And threatening them. Between taking a stand and just being authoritarian. Between using God's name to honor him and using it to justify your own actions. Between pulling people into line or just pushing them out of your way. Between being justly angry and just being angry. Between tackling hard issues and just settling old scores between being a servant ruler and just being a ruler. You can cross those boundaries and still have victories, but not ones that glorify God. And whatever you achieve, you will leave a lot of wreckage behind you. May God spare his people of that and keep our eyes all of our eyes fixed on the cross of Jesus. May his salvation be our joy and may his agenda set the direction of our steps personally and as a church so that God would receive the glory he deserves through willing, humble servants with eyes fixed on the cross. Let's pray together. Gracious Father, Lord, how we confess our utter need for your cross. Lord, I confess in my own heart the the desire to be seen as successful in the eyes of the world, in the eyes of the church, in the eyes of anybody who looks at me. Lord, it is a drug. And Lord, we do pray that your kingdom would be successful, Lord. But may it be your kingdom and not us. God, keep our eyes fixed on Jesus. Keep us humble at the recognition of the weight of our sin and joyful and strengthened at the uh, overwhelming sufficiency of your grace. And Lord, would you guide our steps as we seek to follow you moving forward, as we think about coming out of the season that, that we're that we've been stuck in, Lord. Would all of our aspirations and desires and ambitions be driven by your kingdom and your gospel and not any sort of sense to make our name known. Lord, would our hearts be filled with Jesus such that you are our satisfaction when people interact with Stonebridge. May they be impressed with Jesus, not with us. Lord, would you do your work in and through us. And would you give us, each of us now, just a, a lingering joy in the sufficiency of Christ as we sit at home longing for things to change, looking to the day when we can, can get back to some semblance of normal, as some of us struggle with, with physical needs and, and, and financial trials and uh, all of these challenges before us. Lord, would our hearts be cast upon Christ and his sufficient cross to the glory of your name. And it's in your name we pray, amen.